Welcome to Season 3 of Should We? A conversation with friends about the everyday choices that make us. Brought to you by MailChimp. Hello, Lisa. Hello, Diana. Hello, Kendra. Hello, Diana and Lisa. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) That's just who we are. (laughs) Welcome, and thank you for joining us. So, Kendra is a wonderful person. I met at the Berkman Center at Harvard. The Berkman Center, Berkman Klein. But in our time, it was called the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard. And we've just continued to stay in each other's lives through the internet, which is one of the wonderful things about people who are in an internet and society club. So Kendra works at a technology law firm in San Francisco, and we just love what they do in the world. So we always have should-we questions. You know that. Uh, My first question today is, should we make things that are unusual? Um, I mean, I feel like you wouldn't have had me on the show if you didn't think I was going to be like, absolutely, yes. <laughs> like, that's like basically the premise. Um, the answer to most should we questions yeah. is yes. Should we go on a podcast with our friends? You know, that sort of thing. I think one thing, one of the reasons we kept in touch was that we both kind of enjoy like making things and creating projects and sort of like being like, oh, yes, I'm just going to like do this thing until something comes of it. And even if nothing comes of it, then so what, right? I remember fondly uh, Diana's 24-hour book club, which I think I may, I'm not sure I was the most enthusiastic member of, but I was like a very enthusiastic member of. You were up there. You were, you had the social media aspect of that down. <laughs> um, but that's the thing about the internet. You can kind of, I mean, you don't have to read the book, really. I mean, you can, you can participate however much you like and share whatever picture of your participation you would like. Well, the remarkable thing is that you're a very fast reader. It's it's true. Oh, you uh, read it. You read them all. I the read books. them all. I think <gasps> Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm just remembering the photos of your <laughs> your progress. 24-Hour Book Club is a thing I did uh, with some friends where uh, you read a book in 24 hours and you talk about it on the internet. There is what it says on the tin. Kendra would finish in like a few hours and then just be there coaxing everyone else along for the duration. Oh. oh. See, I was just kind of describing and validating my own experience, which was I did not finish the books, but I did participate on social media and I read some portions of the books. Well, it's funny, actually, that we're talking about 24-Hour Book Club because one of the things that came out of 24-Hour Book Club for me was, I think, possibly the most harebrained project I've done, which is for nine months, I read five books a week. Um, <laughs> That's a lot of books. It was a lot of books. Were you doing anything else at the time? Um, I had a job for the first part of it. A re- whoa. And uh, then I got <laughs> and I got super behind and then I quit my job and I had the summer off before I started law school. And then so I just like read pretty much constantly. But it was a it was a pretty ridiculous thing. I actually was at a party a couple nights ago and somebody was like, well, nobody f- keeps reading after college. And I was like, let me tell you about the year I read 190 books. And I feel like in terms of the 
ability to shut people up at parties, which is actually one of the reasons why primarily I do projects. Um, Like, you know, being saying that he was the guy was like, okay, yeah, definitely. Like, all right, fine. Yes, you continued reading after college. Like, aren't you special snowflake you? Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, it was that was a that was a cool project. I learned I think I learned a lot about my own reading habits because I sort of did this thing at the beginning where I um I was like, oh, I want to have diversity goals. This is like I developed a project and then I like I developed goals, I guess. The, um, the blog post is rematerializing in my mind from when I read the one. Well, you wrote. I think I literally say I was inspired by Diana Kimball's 24 hour <laughs> book club. Um, but the uh, like I had these diversity goals. So I wanted to read 50 percent men and 50 percent women and 30 percent books by people of color. And so, like, about, like, three or four months in, I, like, sort of took a tally of how my reading was going to see how I was doing. And I was, like, like it was, like, 75% white dudes. It was, like, ridiculous. So I ended up having to develop all these new habits to, like, find, like, a more diverse set of authors to read from. Because I sort of, like, would just default into, like, doing what, like, reading whatever people handed to me or whatever, like, someone recommended, which usually tended to be white dudes. So it was sort of a, it was a fun project because now I think I actually read a lot more diversely, even though I don't read five books a week anymore because I have a job and hobbies and a life um, sometimes. And so, like, it was a, it was a cool thing to uh, work on. I'm very curious, what were some of the new strategies you took up? So like literally googling books by people of color. Like I, I like I feel like I had this mental block about like oh like I find books in this particular way, right? Like and I think we all have that, right? It's like oh I find books on Goodreads or oh I find books like by talking to friends. And it just didn't occur to me to literally google the thing I was looking for, but then I did and then I was like, "Oh, look, there are all these lists of like great books by pe- women of color." Like that's actually where I should start. So BuzzFeed has a lot of really good lists of that type. Really? Yeah, really. Yeah. I mean, usually I get to those lists by being like, books like Hunger Games, but also literary. (laughs) 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 But they've got, this is like a a thing, so they've got it down. What was the book about the, like, kids on an island? Not the boxcar children. No, like the one, the one they made you read in uh, high school. Oh, Lord of the Flies. Yeah, so I feel like that's Hunger Games, but literary, right? Ah, yeah, but not (laughs) as not as interesting to me. That's true. Um, Okay, should we make unusual things? Definitely. Should we make things and then use that as weaponry at parties? (laughs) Absolutely. Great. (laughs) Um, What's important about making things that are unusual? I think there's this sort of sense in which people kind of get bogged down into the projects that feel like they're a natural fit for like what they do, right? It's like, oh, like I'm a I'm a lawyer and therefore like I make litigation. <laughs> um, or like things like that. And I think one of the things that I've found the most fascinating is the projects I've learned the most from are the ones where they weren't weren't necessarily within my comfort zone or within my wheelhouse or things that I had any like inherent ability to do well. And those are the ones that I've either found the most positive feedback on or felt like I grew the most from oh you're speaking to my heart (laughs) (laughs) I feel that this is really the story of should we too that you know uh making a podcast wasn't particularly aligned with our day jobs and we both felt really guilty about being writers who don't write that much we felt like there are a lot of other things we should do But podcasts seemed fun and we didn't know how to do it. So we could try it out and experiment. And it did turn out to be so fun and we learned so much. I'm so glad we did it. 
Yeah. And part of why it was easy is that it wasn't part of our identities. Yeah. Like, I think that's huge, right? There's like the Ira Glass quote about like, oh, all the art you make at the beginning sucks. I'm paraphrasing wildly. But I think if you're not invested in the art being good or like the project being perfect, it's much easier to build something and then be like, well, here's what was cool about it. And here's what wasn't cool about it. And I learned a lot from it. And then you're not like it's not like at the end of the day, you have to sort of answer to anyone for like that being the perfect thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're probably paid for the thing that you're best at. So anytime you're paid for something, the stakes go up. So just choose something that you're not good at. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, I think there's this aspect of, of challenging ourselves to be beginners over and over again. And then there's this external aspect you were starting to describe of the thing you do at a party, which is like like surprise people, overturn their expectations, like stretch them a little bit, which I feel like is also I find that really satisfying, too. So I went to I went to drama school for undergrad. And like one of the things I discovered in drama school is there's a whole host of things I'm really, really bad at drawing, drafting, costume design, just like millions of them. I'm horrible at them. Discovering that in an environment where I still had to do the thing, but I didn't really have to be good at it. It was just to like have the thing and was like really freeing in a sense because it's like I don't have to claim to be good at everything. Like you don't only have to do the things you're perfect at, right? And that's sort of very freeing. And then yeah, you get great great things to surprise people with at parties. Also a plus. Should we turn people's expectations inside out? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, like, that's one of our uh, like secondary taglines for should we. Uh, and I'm just finding this conversation so satisfying because I feel like you're highly aligned with this. But I'm trying to figure out why it's so satisfying. <laughs> I feel like culturally we're encouraged not to contain, take those kind of risks, like not to turn people's expectations inside out. It's about like having a personal brand and sticking to it and like, you know, sort of being this like person who is like well-rounded, but only in all the right ways. Right. And then it's really exciting to work on something or like try something where it's just, oh, literally, I have no, there's no reason I'd be good at this. And sometimes you are good at it and sometimes you're not, right? And that's like very freeing. I don't know. I keep using the word freeing. Clearly, I find it freeing. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think that for me, there were definitely vast swaths of my life during which I was trying to fit myself into certain boxes. I just wanted to fit in. I just wanted to like just want things to go smoothly or like prove something to other people about myself, prove I could do something or uh, work in an environment that was unfamiliar to me or or whatever. And now I'm 30 (laughs) (laughs) and leading up to 30, like the past couple of years, definitely I've been resisting the box. I don't want to be boxed in and I don't want anyone else to define what kind of shape I should fill in the world, I want to decide it myself. And I want to, like, keep putting my elbows out and, like, making it even more spacious. I need a lot of... I want to take up space in the world. Next question. Should we meet our match? (laughs) So I feel like you're hinting at something in particular. <laughs> um, I don't know what's giving me I'm that impression. I'm really curious what I am, but what? <laughs> um, 
So I think I think part of why I'm getting these wonderfully pointed questions about projects and stepping out of your comfort zone, right, is that I, I started running like an activist project a couple months ago, which is like not something I actually have a lot of expertise with. I had sort of done like some workshop training and sort of like things like that. But like, I, I'm not sure if you had asked me on like November 7th, if I like identified as an activist, I would probably would have been like, I don't think I get that label. And I'm still not sure I get that label. But like, after Trump got elected, I felt very like upset. Like there was no, there was no place for all my energy to go. Right. I, you know, you could read the news or like read one of 50 billion think pieces about what went wrong and this and like what's wrong with pantsuits or, and so I sort of like, I read this article when I was in the think piece reading stage on um, the Mary Sue about the passport rules. So it turns out if you're if you're transgender and you and you're like binary trans, so if you were assigned male at birth and you're female and you want your passport to reflect your like your actual gender, right? You have to go through this process of getting it changed. And those rules are just basically controlled by the State Department. It's just like the president can decide what they are. So a lot of folks were really worried after the election that as soon as Trump got into office, the rules were going to change and it was going to become incredibly hard to get a passport if you were trans in your in your real gender. It's also true that getting your passport changed is one of the easiest ways to like get an identifier that matches your gender because like some states don't even let you change your birth certificate. Some states have like all these requirements, including sometimes surgery. But like getting your passport changed, you just need a letter from your doctor. And so I read this article and I was like, you know, like a passport, it's like 200 bucks. That's like a lot of money, but like it's not that much money. I bet I could like fund a passport for someone. And I posted on Facebook being like, hey, I'd like to fund a passport for someone. Does anyone know anyone who's like binary, trans and like wants a new passport? And nobody knew anybody. But then like five or six of my friends were like, oh, I would totally fund one too. Like sign me up. And so I was like, well, like, all right. There's got to be people who want passports, right? Like, that's got to be true. And then I was like, you know what the right thing to do here is to create a Google form. (laughs) And, like, since after this happened, I saw that there's this tweet from Lee Honeywell that's like, you know that, like, women are going to fuck some shit up when it's like, oh, she created a Google form, right? Like, like, or it's a Google spreadsheet. But, like, right? And I was like, yep, like, that is exactly what happened. So I was like, all right, I'll create a Google form. So I create this Google this form. This is how we resist. <laughs> no, like, seriously. Google form. I, like, I feel like I'm going to end up in a Google ad at some point. Um, <laughs> I resist that. I was like, all right, I'm going to, like, put all these people who said they would do this on hold, and then I'm going to create this form, and then I'll send them to the form. And I didn't want to post the form link publicly because I was worried about like folks using it for nefarious purposes. So I put it on my Facebook and then I just put a post on Twitter that was like, if you need money for a passport, email me. Here's my email. I have volunteers. We will get you set up. I did not have volunteers. <sighs> like I totally was just making it up as I went along. Like people started emailing me and I just started sending them the form link. And then I had this Google spreadsheet. And I was really, I mean, I I wasn't really surprised by how fast it took off because, like, literally I spent my life before this studying the internet. So, like, the viral nature of people asking for and giving money. Or 
people wanting money was unsurprising. But like I was really surprised by the number of people who wanted to give. And a lot of the first couple of matches, so hence to the question, were actually like friends of mine, like the people who were donating the money. So it felt really safe in the beginning because it was sort of just like, oh, I know these people. Or like literally I can like guarantee you that like this person is not like going to cause you, the person who needs money to change their passport, any harm because I've known them for 10 years. We went to college together. And then it sort of shifted over time. And by the end, when I ended the project a couple months ago or in March, we I'd matched over $100,000. Oh. Just a lot of money. Holy cow. Holy cow. Okay. <laughs> okay. Back up. So the question for this segment is, should we give away other people's money? Yes. Uh, I really recommend it. Uh, it's much preferable to giving away your own money. Does it feel fabulous? <laughs> you know, sometimes. I think what was really hard about it was, like, I had a lot of self-doubt when I was running the project about whether I was doing it right. Like, I'd never really done anything like this before. And I sort of, like, you know, when you're, like, giving to a nonprofit or whatever, you have the institutional safeguards of, like, it's an institution, Right. I didn't ask people to provide documentation of that they were who they said they were, um, like that they needed the money. Like, I didn't feel comfortable with it. Like, I didn't want to be the arbiter of like whether you need the money. So I told folks who were giving money if they wanted documentation, what like whatever they wanted within like reason and being kind, like they can ask for it themselves, but I don't check. And like, so like I would just like wake up at three in the morning and just worry about whether like the people were real um, about whether, like, I had, like, wasted other people's money, right? And in some ways, like, if it's your own money, you can kind of let it go, right? But when it was other people's money, I felt this huge sense of, like, responsibility that I wanted to do a good job and that I felt really strongly that it was really important, like, that everyone involved in the project have good feelings about it, like, donors and the people who, like, the folks who needed money, I call I call them donies because lawyers make up words. Um, <laughs> so, like, you know, it... I think it, like, in a way that was very different than giving to the ACLU, I sort of became like, deeply involved in, like, the, in some cases, in people's lives. Like, you know, okay, like, you're having a really rough time. I will find you a lawyer. Or, like, okay, I've, like, gotten an email from you every two weeks being, like, hey, like, just writing back. Like, the, the judge put my, like, petition on hold again, right? Like, or, like, there are folks who gave money who, like, I have like huge email chains with and I handled all the email myself. So I haven't counted how many emails it is, but it's probably easily in the thousands. And so like I have a lot of form. I have a couple form emails that I use. Like, so it's just like copy paste. But a lot of it I wrote by hand. I was like, these people are trusting me with their money or for the folks who needed money. These people are trusting me with like really sensitive personal information. And like, how do I like the only way I feel good about that trust is by, you know, doing it all myself. Although I did have some wonderful volunteers who helped me with like the back end spreadsheet stuff. I'm very grateful. <laughs> but yeah, it was like I do recommend giving away other people's money, especially if you don't have, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars sitting around to give out, like A plus. But I think it does change your relationship to that process. And when you're sort of worried, it's not just about you, it's about like sort of this trust that other people have placed in you as like the person brokering those relationships. So I heard you mention that you've wound down the project, and I'm curious, how how did the ending of it come about? It sounds like I'm, like, 
shilling Diana's personal brand. But it's true that when I started the project, I literally thought and went back and reread Diana's No More Forever projects oh, uh, writing yes. like the or, uh, article because I like talked to a lot of press at the very beginning because people were super like excited about it or whatever. And people, someone asked me how long I was going to run it for. <laughs> and I was like, as long as people need money and people have money or until I'm done. Those were like, those were my parameters, right? And I hit this point in March where I think a lot of responding to the email from folks for me was like, can I like summon up inside myself like the kindness and empathy to see where this person is at and to meet them there and to be like totally honest and straightforward in my email? I think before I ran this project, I, I like now apologizing is really easy for me. It's much easier after running this project than it was before, because I think I got used to the idea that I could be really sorry. Like I could be really sorry that we couldn't help someone or really sorry that things didn't work out and still not have any control over it and it not be really my fault. Right. Like that part of running a project like this was feeling profoundly invested in people on both ends of the transaction, but actually having zero control over what either of them do. Because I never saw the money, right? I would connect people and they would Venmo it or they PayPal it or they write a check. But like, I didn't have any control over what people at the end of the transaction did. So if I wrote like, I'm so sorry that the donor stopped getting back to you. Like I was sorry that the donor stopped getting back to that person, but I like couldn't do anything to change it. By the time I got into March, it sort of felt more like a chore, which is like, okay, like I think at some point all projects feel like chores, like even things you love and you care about, right? Like some days you get up and you're just like, that's the last thing I want to do. Maybe the last thing I want to do today is record a podcast or answer some email or whatever. But I like couldn't, people were just annoying me rather than like me feeling for them anymore, right? Like it was really hard for me to summon up the energy to care about what people wanted and needed. And I was like, all right, that's, that's the I'm done. Right. Like that's the point at which I need to stop running this project, because eventually if I haven't screwed up yet, I will screw up if I am not able to like actually have positive feelings towards the people like on the other end of the email. So I was like, I'm done. And then wound down the project. And did you ever have thoughts of like other features for the project? Yeah. So I had there were still many like donors left when I ended the project. And for me, that's kind of a sense of there's a sense of guilt there. Right. It's like, oh, there was sort of money on the table. And I thought about, like, do I transition it to another person? Like, do I try to give this to someone? But for better or worse, a I ran the project out of like my secondary personal email address. Like, it's thank God it was not out of my actual personal email address. Or I think I I don't know what would have happened. It would have been bad. But I can't. And I like for a lot of reasons, that was not an email address where I could turn over the keys, basically like a password to or access to. And then, you know, there's sort of I have this question a lot about whether I should like turn it over to some nonprofit. Right. Like be like, okay, like there's got to be someone. And I think actually one of the things I learned running the project is that this is a space that there aren't a lot of nonprofits that operate in because risks are really high. Right. Like. I, as an individual, people kind of just were like, okay, you're you're matching me with someone. I'm just going to give them money. You have no guarantees. There's no like tax exempt status, right? Like, you know, that's fine. You're just a human. But as soon as you put it behind an organization, then I feel like there has to be more process. And I actually had an organization approach me <laughs> and ask me if I would run a version of the project for them, mm. for the like a 
population of folks because they felt like they couldn't run it internally because of like the strictures that were on them as an organization. And I like kind of was like, I'm not sure this is a good idea. It was really easy for me to give away other people's money. It's much harder for other organizations to give away other people's money. So I just decided by the end that I didn't, none of the options felt good and that like it's sort of a project I ran on feeling good. And so when it, none of them felt good, it felt like that was just, that was just the end. So you reached your limits as a human, but it was your human limits that made the whole thing work. Yeah. I mean, I think people are much kinder and to me and like much more understanding of sort of the foibles of the process because it was like literally like the same person every day answering their email right Mm -hmm. and that like there were other there are other sort of some a couple of similar projects and I think like one thing that was different about mine was it was like literally what you do is you email me you write like an email that says like dear Kendra I need to change my passport or you didn't have to write dear Kendra but you could just write whatever and that like humanness I think really along with the humanness of like there's a person on the other end and they need a specific thing. I would try not to pair multiple donors with like one person. So usually it was like one person who get, could give $200 giving to one person who needed a new passport. And like that human connection was, I think, I mean, I don't have I don't have real data, but I, I feel like people tended to give more, suggest that they would give more money because it was going directly to one person than they would to sort of some sort of organizational like group, right? So my side of experiencing this project was just the grim, grim days after the election, like not feeling the energy or hope to do stuff, but knowing I had to do stuff, like if I can't do, you know, I have to, (laughs) I have to do stuff. And so your initiative, both like the fact that you, you were taking initiative, you know, you were taking matters into your own hands. And that was really inspiring to me to see somebody who was going through the same muck, doing something about it. And, you know, I donated through the project. Uh, I actually donated through the Sylvia Rivera Law Project. Some of the matches you made were through organizations who provided like another layer of protection or privacy to their clients and who were helping with the process overall. And then when I, a week or two later, was finally ready to figure out what I was going to do in an ongoing way, I just made a list of all my worst fears, and then I decided to donate monthly to counterbalance all of them, and the Sylvia Rivera Law Project was one of them, so I now donate monthly. Yeah, I mean, that's directly traceable back to you taking initiative in the dark. That makes me feel really great. It's also, you know, the folks at the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, one of the people who emailed me was actually someone I went to law school with who was representing a client who needed money, right? So it was sort of like weird, you know, we had known each other in law school, but now she works at Sylvia Rivera Law Project. And we sort of had this moment where I was like, yeah, I can find your client money. And it, it like made me feel really good because I think I do public interest layering in my day job, but I don't do what's what's called in the business, like direct client services, which is like actually interacting with humans who need help, right? And so, like, being able to help the folks who were sort of on the ground working was, like, really meaningful to me. And I'm so glad to hear that you're giving to Sylvia Rivera Law Project because it's, like, an amazing organization. I, I guess as I heard both of you describe something of your emotional journey post-election, it made me think about mine, too. And I think I had an initial feeling of, like, uh, someone's going to do something about this, right? This is... 
Oh no, everything's a mess, but surely lots of people notice and somebody's going to take care of it, right? And then it was like a couple days in of like, nope, I mean, I need to do something. It's me. It's up to me. I'm a grown-up. It's my country. It's my future. Uh, What am I going to do? And um, that was a real something that definitely hit me the day of the Women's March. That sense of like, ah, well, I have to do something. I'll just let my feet take me to a place where other people are gathering to like do something and kind of get some momentum going. But then there was this, just by taking some action of my own, then I was able to discover people and organizations who are doing things to create the future I hope for. So it's it was this very interesting process of like discovering a need that I care so much about, being a little bit lazy and hopeless and hoping someone else might fix it and then being like no but I am a part of the change and then being like we are a part of the change we can do it together and I'll find other people who care too and we will have to like take turns a little and sometimes do sort of a relay because we will get tired and we should take care of ourselves too so that we can keep going. Yeah, I've been reading this book by Rebecca Solnit called A Paradise Built in Hell, which is like about communities that arise in the wake of natural disasters. And I think what shocked me when I read it, because I kind of just picked it up because someone recommended it to me a while ago, was how much what I was reading resonated with my experience like post-election, right? This sense of like, like she has this sort of section and it's actually about the San Francisco earthquake where she talks about the like horribleness of a natural disaster can in some ways be a break from like the terribleness that is like normality right like going to your job and just doing your day-to-day things and having all these like little problems right and now there's like one big problem and I think in some ways that was true of the election in some ways it wasn't but I do think I definitely experienced what she talked about in the book where you find yourself doing things you didn't really think were possible because there was no one else there to do them. And she also has a section about uh, 9-11, which I almost cried when I was reading it on BART today. So it's like, highly recommend. You know, and I, I went to SFO during right after the first Muslim ban and ended up giving out food because there was people just kept showing up with food and then people needed to eat because people had been there at the airport forever. And sort of this sense of like, there's no one here but us, right? There's no one in charge. People just kept showing up with pizza, and then we came up with a plan to give out the pizza, and there was no, like, one pizza pizza organizing overlord, right? It was just, like, individuals doing what they could. You know, it's really scary, right, to think that no one's coming for you, right? Like, that, like, no one has it under control. But also, like, very, you know, freeing or empowering, right? It's like, you have you have the ability to like make that difference and do that thing and you don't always have to be the one doing it right you can take a step back and other people will step up and like help out as as you were describing going to the airport on on that day that particular weekend I, I remember I was going to the airport that day too but I was going to fly I was flying from San Francisco to LA and I was really exhausted, really kind of downtrodden just from other things and like working really hard. And I remember as I was going to the airport, I felt so guilty. I was like, but this time I'm not 
going there to stand in solidarity, but I wish I were, but I also just, I need to do whatever, as much as I can do today. And then I got in the lift line and there were other people in the lift line on the way to just to go to the airport to protest. And we connected with each other. And I felt like, oh, yes, we're, we're taking turns. And today isn't my day, but tomorrow can be <laughs> my day and then they can go to bed. Yeah, right. Like you need to, if you're not I don't know. It's just like, <laughs> sounds so ridiculously hokey. I like, I still can't believe this happened to me. So I was working on this other project um, where I helped my friend who produced this uh, website that showed how many immigrant doctors from the countries affected by the ban were in each like metropolitan area. So I like spent a whole bunch of time working with him and his team and like figuring out how to help them and like helping with copy editing and that stuff. And like I had to take a break because I had signed up for yoga like four days before before I knew this project to exist. So I walked over to the yoga class and I like took the yoga class and I, at the end the yoga teacher goes, thank you for sharing your practice with me. Remember, we take care of ourselves so we can in turn take care of others. And I was like, oh, my God, my heart. Right. Like this was exactly what I needed to hear. Right. That like you have to take care of yourself or like you can't do this kind of stuff right if, if you're not in a good place you yourself like it's really hard it's even harder to like summon up the energy to work for other people should we do emotional labor <laughs> uh, i mean this was a project about emotional labor and i so i feel like the answer is yes if you know what you're getting yourself into like slash having consented to it right a couple of weeks ago, I was on a plane and I had gotten a request for someone wanted me to do something that I really didn't want to do. And it felt like a lot of work. And so I wrote a letter that's this is so nerdy. So I do a lot of FOIA litigation, so Freedom of Information Act. And when you file a Freedom of Information Act request with the government, which is just being like, hey, give me all the documents about this. They send back this letter that's like, we acknowledge your your thing, the thing you sent us. It's going to take us forever to respond because we have a lot of people in front of you and like your thing is not important enough. Like that's the letter they send you. It's fancier than that. So I wrote one of these letters about emotional labor right I was like your request is not important enough to me and like you don't get priority status because you're not like one of my good friends or I didn't consent to this so like it may take several months for me to give a fuck um and it was the most cathartic thing (laughs) Um, it was like and I think the population of people who will understand all the jokes in that letter is possibly three right like but like other people who do FOIA and also like care a lot about like emotional labor right (laughs) Um, which is the only reason I have to haven't posted it on the internet yet. But I, you know, I think like I kind of saw that the trans project is in some ways like weaponizing emotional labor, right? It's like what I was doing was just literally the connection of two people. And I also, I run workshops to teach people like ally skills. So how to like stand up for like targeted communities if they're not a member of them. I also see that in some ways as like, I am here to, like, answer the questions that you have and, like, help you work through stuff that you don't, like, quite understand yet in order to, like, save someone else from doing this emotional labor later who, like, isn't supposed to. I think a lot of, like, the, to the extent that I have anything that could be called an activist practice, I think a lot of it is about weaponizing and, like, choosing that time to do emotional labor and, like, making a commitment, like, this is what I'm going to do. And then, like, when you can't do it anymore, you got to stop because otherwise it has huge consequences for your life. I'm thinking about how much purpose I hear in all the things you do. And do you have, like, a... You're laughing, but you do. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Don't be sheepish. Um, is that something that you feel or that you've articulated? I think it's something that I articulate. That's why I'm laughing is because, like, you know, there's this sort of, like, this phenomenon where people like backronym things, right? It's like, oh, we come up with the thing we want an acronym for, and then we make the words match. And I feel like that's how I do projects. Like, I do them first, and then I come up with rationales mm. later. Like, let me tell you about all my feelings about, like, individual donation. Like, I, ha- I have lots of thoughts and feelings, and they've come from doing the projects, but it's not like I usually sit down at the beginning, and I'm like, I have these very defined goals, and I want this thing. It's sort of more I act first, and then I come up with rationales later. You have, like, a portfolio of impact. I mean, really, like, let's let's talk about this. What are the parts of your portfolio? Oh, that's a hard question. I think about the projects I do as in some ways, like weaponizing. I don't know why I keep using that word, but I think in the context of sort of activism, it's like it feels appropriate to me. Like particular like aspects of my identity or like or like skills that I have, like my, my Google spreadsheets uh, acumen or like my ability to answer email. Or I did a I've done I did a project when I was at uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation that was really about like an in-depth knowledge of video games. Like that was what I brought to the project. And it allows me to sort of do something with skills that I've sort of inadvertently picked up and then rationalize having those skills. Right. It's like, ah, There was a long time, I think, where I felt kind of self-conscious is the wrong word. I felt I felt that there's only a small number of ways to sort of make a difference in the world. Right. And like I think for a while, I definitely thought writing was like the primary way of like communicating my thoughts. And I think I felt that way often because it was the hardest for me, like that it that it should feel like work, like doing good in the world should feel difficult. Right. So like writing is really hard for me. So it must be the thing that I'm supposed to be doing. And then I like kind of have realized, I think more recently that like you don't actually only have to do the things that are hard. You can also do things that you're good at and that are come easy to you. And like, like there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like so- socially often, like it's like, ah, like I slaved over this. And it's like actually answering email was pretty easy for me. There were moments where it was hard, but like literally at, like right after the election, every time I was tempted to read a think piece, like I would open Slate and I would close Slate and I would go answer email, right? Like that was my like <laughs> workflow. And so, like, using those skills that you have that you kind of discount because it comes easily to you is that finding that niche can be really powerful in a way that sort of trying to conform to some vision of, like, what impact looks like isn't. This makes me think of two things. First of all, I had a wonderful manager several years ago who gave me this advice when I was very overwhelmed. I was like, what should I do? Which thing should I do first? There are all these things on my plate. You put them there and I put them there and help me figure it out. And he was like, well, you should do the thing that only you can do that will make all the difference. And I was like, well, that's going to be like one to three of these 500 things. And he was like, oh, well. Well, just everything else will fall apart, but it will make all the difference. So you might as well do those. And I, it was like, but those are the fun things. Those are the easy things that I, I'm just going to do what I want to do then, basically, because I'll do it the best, and that's why it'll make a difference. And I've come back to that so many times since then. And it also speaks to a perpetual should we question, should we let it be easy? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh, Lisa, this is the theme of the week, truly, because I just had exactly that conversation with my manager. 
And I had that same conversation with my coach. So this is in the air. It's the week of Let It Be Easy. Thank you, Tara Moore, one of our favorite writers who wrote the book Playing Big, which includes the the insistence on letting it be easy. And that book has inspired both of us a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot. I have this set of notes from my latest session with my coach that has like hard equals value line through it. (laughs) (laughs) Right? And, and, you know, I'm in this place at my product management job where I'm doing like a lot of small stuff right now. I'm just moving a lot of things forward on a lot of different fronts. And that was feeling really scattered. But it all felt really easy. And then I was thinking about that today and I was like, oh, it's easy because I know everyone and I know a lot of things and I know that I don't know everything and people trust me a lot. And I was like, oh, the prerequisite of like everyone's been through the trenches with me and trusts me a lot is actually really hard. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's like who has that, you know, Um So that made me realize that there's a lot that can be accomplished from wherever you are. As we were talking about our various efforts, there were definitely moments where I was going back in my head being like, have I, I haven't done enough, what have I, kind of like devaluing the whatever I have done since the election and The main thing I have done is make donations, and I feel a little guilty about that. Like, sometimes it has just felt really easy to to press a button, and I know that that's not the, the only way I can make a difference, but I think I also need to remind myself, that makes a difference. I like pressing that button and it feels easy. I'm gonna keep doing it. I love the donate button. And I think, like, it is often, I, like, I feel this in myself sometimes, like, the urge to moralize. And especially when I was spending a lot more time on the project or was still running the project, I, you know, it was harder for me to just be like, oh, like, well, to folks who were sort of weren't even, like, weren't worried or weren't taking any action to not be like, oh, my God, like, why aren't you freaking out? Like, I'm freaking out. And I actually, like thought a lot about that process and sort of tried really, really hard to have kindness towards other people because I think it is like, it's like kind of like being like the only person working on a team project. It's really easy to get like all like, you know, I'm, I'm gesturing, which is unhelpful on a podcast. Um, (laughs) uh, All like sort of like uptight and self-righteous about it, but also like, you know, you never know where people are coming from. I think it's important to value action, but I also think that you can't, and I include giving money in the category of action. But I also think that like making people feel bad is very rarely is pretty much never a good path towards like making them feel involved and safe and want to like want to do more. That's just not how it works. I worked on a project when I was in law school about helping people get through bankruptcy without lawyers. So we wrote these packets, these like, and they're not really packets, it's a binder of like instructions to get through bankruptcy. And one of the things the professor I worked for told us constantly was that the reason people don't finish bankruptcy is not, or don't do bankruptcy is not because they are not capable of doing it or like they're not smart enough or they don't have their stuff together. It's because they feel shame. 
part of the role of that project, of those forms, was to get people through the shame and get people into a place where they could just fill out the forms. I thought about that a lot when I was like writing the material, like the actual form for the documentation project, because my goal was to make people who are going through it not like feel shame, right? That it's there's no shame in asking for help. And I also feel that way about like people sort of who are coming maybe getting more politically involved, right? Like there's no shame in it being your first time or like not knowing what to do or feeling uncertain, right? Like, and if you build a culture around sort of like, like trying to get people to act from shame, that's not going to work. That doesn't cause people to act. Yeah. A lot of my work as a coach is working with really conscientious people to take bold action. And like, I love doing it because conscientious people already thought about all the different things they could do, but they knew that each of them had consequences and some of the consequences canceled each other out. And so there's this thing, as I hear you talking about shame, I'm thinking about shame in my own life and shame in other people's lives. And like, if you feel shame, you probably care. And if you care, you can probably get through it. There's probably a way through. But actually getting to the bottom of that and knowing that there are people who are not conscientious and who just act and then experience consequences. And that's a thing, too. Like, they should also not feel shame. But there's a category of people who are not acting because they care a lot. And that, there's so much potential there. What should we read? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Um, I always have at least six answers for this. All right. Diana checks her watch. <laughs> Do we have time for Kendra to answer this question? So I'm really, I haven't finished A Paradise in Hell. I'm really finding it much more remarkably compelling than I thought I would. Um, obviously, Rebecca Solnit's a great writer. So I would definitely recommend that. I also just finished a book called The Traitor by Rue Cormorant, which is a fantasy novel that features a forensic accounting scene so compelling that I was reading it at 2 a.m. Forensic accounting. Yes. I didn't know this was a thing, but so okay, I'm interested. I like this book defies all description, but it is a very, very good fantasy novel with lots of intrigue that deals with like problems of racism and sexism and homophobia. And also the main character is an accountant. And so I've been recommending that to like literally everyone I know. Thank you. Finally, I, so my, like my, it's not really a secret vice, but my, one of my vices is like advice columns. I read a lot of advice columns, which is hilarious because I hate when people give me advice. That's not true. I hate when people give me unsolicited advice. So I just read, I think it's called A Thousand Beautiful Things, which is the tiny, beautiful, tiny, beautiful, beautiful things. things. Thank you. Yes. Which is the collection of Dear Sugar's advice columns, which I also really, really enjoyed. Parts of it are super compelling. Parts of it are, you know, sort of I was like, ah, I'm not sure I believe that this is the right advice. But that's the fun of reading advice columns is you can be like, no, nah, I, I would have told them something different and I would have been right and then feel superior for at least a little bit. What should we do next? Well, if if you were like, oh, wow, I really would have give, wanted to give some individual money for a passport, but Kendra doesn't run this project anymore. There's a hashtag called trans crowdfund which you can just search on Twitter. And often trans folks who need help with things will just post like a GoFundMe link or a PayPal link there along with some information about who they are. I think one of the things the project taught me was about how compelling and how important individual donations are, like to individual people. Because sometimes you don't need like a lawyer who's going to like fight for your right, 
<laughs> your right to use a public bathroom. Um, you know, sometimes you don't need a lawyer who who like fight for your rights. Sometimes you just need someone to help you with your car payment so you don't lose your job that you, like that you had to take or because like every other organization you've worked at was super transphobic, right? And so I think we sometimes people forget about the sort of practical realities of like living in as part of a targeted community is that everything costs more, either in money or in time or in pain. So I would recommend trans crowdfund. And the other thing, of course, as we sort of maybe talked about earlier, is um, the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, which is an organization in New York City that is, they just, their way of thinking about what organization advocating for trans people works should look like and work towards is like the one that I often feel like the strongest it's like sort of they I think they use the phrase true liberation and I always really like that and they sort of work from the bottom up which is really compelling to me thank you so much Kendra thank you for having me oh I could talk to you all day (laughs) (laughs) it was so much fun We have many people to thank. Should we begin with our patrons? Yes. Thank you to our patrons. You too can join the Love Hate Club at shouldwe.co slash pay. And we would also like to thank Yosh at Faultline Studios for recording and editing this episode. Thank you to the band Canada for our theme song, Hey Garland. Thank you to Math Times Joy for our identity. And thank you to all of our listeners who keep changing our beliefs about what should we is for. Thank you very much. Should you tune in next time? We'll leave it to you.